Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When I was a kid, my dad and mom took us to Ireland, among other places, where I literally kissed the Blarney Stone. And I recently talked to a dear friend for my business, Voice Locket, uh, named Ken Lee, who is an Irishman and an American, born in Ireland, the youngest of 11 kids. And I could listen to the guy read the phone book. And it was an honor to record his story and to ask him about growing up and how it's led him to lead an international business in executive search. And the we're still cutting the, the film together, but it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's gratifying. It serves my soul. And it's my profession. So I invite you to check out voicelocket.com, and I'm now branching out to tell the stories of founders and their businesses. So I hope I can help you. When you can figure out what your purpose is, the world starts to fall in place because you start to see those values and actions that help support that vision for yourself. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. Kristen Lampert tried the heartbreaking uh, means of getting pregnant again and again and again. And I didn't know this story. And the story of who stepped forward to carry uh, her baby to term is really very touching. But that's just the beginning of what this woman has to offer. She's now coaching other women and men who are high performing in a high pressure workplace to not feel the sense of guilt, to be able to handle the role of parent as well as executive. So she's founded Parental Shift Coaching, but her backstory is just amazing. Kristen Lampert. Where were you born? I was born in Elgin, Illinois. I was born uh, and grew up in Woodridge, Illinois, which is like a small town outside of Chicago. Did you go into Chicago a lot as a kid? Not really. You know, we grew up um, in the suburbs and in the summer we would go into the city and experience the museums and, you know, downtown. But it was usually just a point of stress for my family. <laughs> like whenever they came into the city, it was all the things they didn't know. You strike me as exemplifying that phrase, Midwest nice. Yeah. <laughs> I can't shake it out of me. 
<laughs> no, no, that's I mean, a good thing. That's a compliment. Yeah, we moved to Manhattan right out of college, and um, when we lived in New York. Everyone, I mean, I might as well have been Pollyanna from Kansas. I mean, people were like, you know, you are not a New Yorker. <laughs> I was taught at a young age, and I appreciate my my dad did this. Um, he taught us to look everybody in the eye. So whenever we were walking down the street and we did it, you know, when we were kids, you know, you nodded. And my, my dad had this thing where he would like kind of nod and say yellow. You know, it wasn't like a hello, it was a yellow. <laughs> and, um, and or he'd just say like in a very affirmative way, like good day, you know, or good morning. And um, and that that just has carried with me my whole life. You know, it's an acknowledgement of people that there's this other human here um, and it can be subtle. And yet it's so incredibly important when you actually do it. Right especially in the day and age of AI, when we're dealing with Siri and Alexa and not real humans, not real humans you have to acknowledge oh, well, we're, we're both struggling here. I know. Well, you know, what's funny about that is, you know, I still say please and thank you to my, to Siri and to Alexa. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> Why am I doing that? And, and they say, you're welcome. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. It's, you know, even though um, the technology can be black and white and somewhat, um, you know, sterile, you know, we can make it whatever we want, you know, as far as how we show up as humans, when we interact with it. For yeah. your mother, you're number what of how many? I'm number one of four. So you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Yes. The leader. Yes, naturally. So how does that manifest itself in the way you are in the world? Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, it was funny. We had this game when I was a little girl, and uh, it was called Architect. And the job was that I would get my two twin sisters, who are a year younger than me. Um, I was probably, what, eight or nine years old. And the whole structure was that they had to sit in these old chairs that my mom got from uh the school like the school was getting rid of old desks and so we had these two desks and those were set up in front of the bunk bed and i would sit on the bunk bed and they would be the two chairs and the game the entire game was that they would answer phones for me and they would schedule appointments for my architecture firm and the that was it i mean the whole game we'd spend play hours with this game and we created these little calendars and they the whole game would be i'm sorry kristen's not available um <laughs> for thursday at 4 p.m i mean that was the whole game and then we would have lunches i don't know if i just watched too much murphy brown or something but <laughs> i would <laughs> i would play this game all the time so i was naturally a board leader and i loved being the leader um and it showed you know, I did, I was a lifelong Girl Scout. I did, I, I mean, when I say lifelong, Daisy all the way to senior. Um, even in high school, even when it wasn't cool, I was still a Girl Scout. Um, do they have something like Eagle? They do. They had, so they have a gold award and they have a silver award. And I uh, earned the silver award. So that was quite a commitment. Um, and of course I did because, you know, 
<laughs> that was me. When you look back at yourself as a girl and especially as a teenager, what were your natural talents, calling? Oh, goodness. I mean, I think I've always been a strong communicator. And when I was younger, I didn't know how to use the muscle of being able to connect and make peace and be diplomatic. Like I was naturally the peacemaker as the oldest of four and always negotiating. Um, and so that was a natural skill. I think when I was younger and in high school, I was also just inherently more of a pleaser and was probably more accommodating and a bit of a pushover, um, you know, when I was younger, just because I didn't know how to articulate that voice. And um, as I became more confident in my own abilities, that kind of started to become less of a thing. Um, I would say that I'm naturally pretty nurturing, um, you know, that maternal instinct. Uh, you know, I was a babysitter, uh, team player. I worked at Target and all the different types of retail stores and relatively hardworking and industrious. Um, those were kind of some values that came through pretty obviously in my youth. Um, I was men, a swimmer. Yeah. Men have a phrase and uh -huh. my wife had never heard this phrase. It's between a dick and a doormat. Have you ever heard that phrase? <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Well, the same thing happens with women. Like, how do you go from being just a pushover, you know, just, you know, mm -hmm. a doormat that people wipe their feet on to being 100% bitch, you know, like Miss, Miss Nice, Miss Accommodating, straight to bitch. Like, how did you learn how to? No, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. No, I don't have time to do that. How did you learn that skill? That's a huge skill. It is. Well, and, you know, I think from a gender standpoint, like we, we tend to be kind of labeled or put into certain stereotypes. Like when you think about the workforce, I joined, you know, um, some pretty male dominated industries early in my career. So what I started, in I well, I started a nonprofit and then I moved to an investment bank and worked for an investment bank that did nonprofit lending. And the, you know, the in investment banking, financial services, you know, I was there 2007 and went through the whole crisis, experienced this huge shift and that culture, and what I noticed with a lot of times with women in the workforce, you you do get labeled, right? Like you're either the bitch, like you're really hard to work with and really rough around the edges, or you're like super sweet and kind and nice. And then there's this like spectrum in between that people struggle to find. And, you know, luckily I grew up in an organization that was committed to making a lot of changes for women in the workforce, I think, frankly, ahead of its time. So, you know, I joined this firm when there was the first non-family CEO. And this CEO was coming in after 110 years of existence to turn around an environment that had become, you know, in some ways, all the things we don't want to see in a workforce, you know, a bit more cronyism, a bit more nepotism, a bit more, you know, sexism, if you will, all those things. And so this CEO had come in and I was his executive assistant. 
So I came in as an EA office manager, um, working with the board, working with the organization. Um, and he had in about two years prior to me joining there, revamped the entire ship, like leadership team and turned it into about three, like about maybe a third of women where they didn't have any women at the leadership table. And so what I experienced coming into that was a group of women who actually earned and had that seat, you know, chief compliance officer, chief legal officer, chief, you know, um, administrative officer, head of HR, all these people were women who were these like incredible markers of examples of women who sat right in that middle lane, who could be able to navigate both that assertiveness, that confidence, and also, you know, lean into their collaborative nature. And so um, I got to see diversity at the C-suite early in my career for women and found some anchors in my own mentorship um, when I started to figure that out. So it wasn't until, you know, probably, you know, the lucky part was even in my nonprofit days, I worked for um, two really badass women. I mean, like world renowned, incredible leaders. And they taught me quickly that, you know, that workplace harmony that we seek um, is achievable. And it also comes with sacrifices. And it also comes with a lot of kind of, um, uh, satisfaction when you know that the work you're doing is really meaningful. So what is the um, sacrifice? You know, I think the sacrifice was the, I think for women, the sacri- early in my career, I saw the sacrifice as a lot of travel, right? Because I worked for an international arm of a nonprofit. So my boss would be, you know, she had two young kids under four and she would be in Switzerland for a week or she would have to go to, you know, Latin America for a meeting for four days. And then, I mean, just would be do everything she possibly could to get one less night, you know, away so she could be with her kids. And that juggle, you know, that struggle with how do I achieve the work that I do and also show up for my family and also um, reprioritize. And, you know, that was back in 2003. And I thought she did a fantastic job, you know, setting boundaries and communicating clearly where her needs were and where her limits were on what she's willing to do for the company and what she needs to do for our family. So I was lucky to see that in action early. Um, Why did you decide to get married? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, you know, I got, I, I'm, so my husband and I were exes now. Um, so it's, but we were together for 23 years. I was 19 when I met him. Um, and, you know, he was my best friend. And he also was, uh, we grew up together. I mean, we went to college. He, I met him when I was a sophomore in college. Um, and, uh and I still love him today. He's a wonderful man. Um, but why did I get married? I, you know, I think I I wanted the the image. I wanted the life of the thing we're supposed to do as women, right? So get married, have kids, do the thing, you know, all that fun stuff. And we, um, and I, you know, genuinely loved him. 
you know, so that love was real and, and very honest and true. And so um, we got married when I was 26. We were, we dated for about five and a half years before then. And I mean, I remember being in Manhattan when we got, we moved to Chicago, uh, maybe about a year before we got married. And, um, you know, I was engaged at 24. And I remember like, my coworkers in New York being like, how the hell are you doing this? Like, you don't even know yourself. And in hindsight, you know, it's true. I, I didn't, I didn't know who I was. I knew who I was in a context of a relationship. Um, but the journey of figuring out who I am, oh my God, that's the lifelong journey I've been on, you know? So that's, you know, the nice part was I got to learn who I was in the context of somebody that I, I trusted and somebody that, um, I think we genuinely cared for. So that was healthy and supportive. Are there, are there best practices and workplaces now in which women are not called upon to make such sharp sacrifices or at a certain level of every profession, will that always be the case? You know, it, it's a great question because what I hear, you know, so obviously like my business is around helping parents show up present and positive. Um, and the reason why I have that mission is because I do see at times a lot of women in particular, but parents in general, opting out of maybe that next promotion or that next elevation in their career because they have kind of a duality in their mindset. The duality is I either put everything into my career or I put everything into my family, right? You know, if I want to have the awesome job and the VP title and the whatever, then I must sacrifice my personal values, beliefs, actions, uh, the things that matter most to me. And I think 30 years ago, that was 100% true. I think that you know, we trained and a lot of the, you know, generations in the workforce leading the way did exactly that. They sacrificed for a certain level or a certain lifestyle or accommodation, and they lost out on some of the things that mattered most to them. That's not true today. I, I, I do not believe that we have to create ors in the situation. I think we can have ands. And that doesn't mean that there aren't seasons to our lives where work takes dominance or seasons in our lives where life takes dominance, the obligations with family or caring for an elderly parent or anything like that. There are seasons where we have to make kind of shifts, but I do not believe that we should be self-limiting our goals or our dreams because we want to have a family. And the people that I see successfully navigate it, they become really good at understanding their own kind of ecosystem in their heads, what drives them, what boundaries they need to set in their own relationships and in their life. And, you know, kids don't need us to be present 100% of the time. They don't want us around. But when, when we are around, they want us there. They want us off our devices they want us off of distracted. They want us not in the last meeting we just had. They want us present to them right now, even if that's just five minutes of genuine connection. 
that five minutes can be the connecting point that leads to really meaningful long-term relationships with your children. So I think people a lot of times tell ourselves the lies that we have to, when we get to a certain level, you know, we have to sacrifice everything. I think the great resignation, COVID, all these big factors helped us understand that, to be honest, a value-driven life is the only life we want to lead because we live in a space of incredible choice. And if you are, a you know, an educated, you know, leader or an educated talent out there in the marketplace, you have choice. And frankly, the millennials and the people coming in to the workforce, they know this. It's, it's the people like me or the people above who haven't figured it out because we're resentful that we've made sacrifices for our lives that, that didn't pan out. But we're in this intellectual age. You know, everything that sits around what it means to be human all the stuff that we are able to outsource to machines and to AI and to technology, that all that all we can get rid of. I don't have to book a calendar invite for the rest of my life. I got Calendly. But what I do need is the human ability to manage my thoughts and to manage my own cognition and to bring insight and meaning and connection and humanity into the work I do. So that requires skill building. And so we are in a space where the more skills you build, the more abilities you have, and the more you use them in the workforce, that's the commodity. That's the skill. But it all is about you. So no wonder why millennials are coming into the workforce saying it's about me, because guess what? It, it kind of is. <laughs> How do you manage your thoughts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, no, how do you, not how do you tell people? How, how do, do I manage you, my thoughts? Kristen. How does Kristen your... manage her thoughts? I mean, it's been a lifelong journey. Um, I, uh, some things I think are innate to me. I have a relatively forgetful and forgiving memory, right? So the nice thing is I don't remember a lot of shit that happens to me. So the good thing is that I don't sit in rumination um, thinking about a lot of those things. And I don't know what it is about my brain that does that, but I do think of it as a gift, right? Um, because I know a lot of people who can relive narratives for a long time in their head about something that happened 25 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago. And for whatever reason, my brain does not spend much time there. Um the training that I've done to manage my own brain and my own thoughts is a lot about reframing. So what I do probably on a consistent basis and have done, I mean, gosh, even, you know, I'm in the process of a, a separation and divorce. Like this is, you know, empirically a really hard emotional time. There's no reason why this should be something that like, I'm, yeah, I'm not like, bubbly and cheerful about it. It's it's really hard to confront um, the loss and grief of a, of a meaningful relationship. Um, but what I spend a lot of time doing is I clear my mind. I do a lot of meditation. Um, I really focus on positive thoughts, shifting to spaces of where can I find learning in this? Because the loss of, for example, a relationship, a very meaningful one, and the navigation of managing it in the context of a, having a child, ooh, that's like meaty, tough work. 
what I do is I spend a fair amount of time really trying to understand what are the gifts of this relationship? What were the things about this that I can celebrate? And I just spend more time on those areas than on on the loss. Now, I do allow myself like 15 to 20 minutes to like cry my heart out, you know, whenever it shows up and I need to process. So I think the other, the other thing is you have to just be ready to allow your feelings to be expressed and give yourself the space actually to process, whether it's sadness or um, anger or frustration or whatever it may be. So I now I do a lot around that. Um, I'll go see my therapist at one o'clock today. And she has said to me, grieving is fine. Being stuck in grief is not. So what does healthy grief look like for Kristen? And and what would you say is unhealthy grief? Yeah. You know, um, grief. What is is not helpful, I guess? Yeah. I mean, with grief, it is a incredibly powerful tool and you have to be committed to the process of that right grief is a meaning maker journey we don't like the only reason why we process and use grief is because we're transferring the pain we're experiencing into something that creates meaning for our lives right and that journey is mucked up with a whole bunch of feelings right anger resentment you know bargaining and all these things um the what I encourage people and like what I know for myself is that if I am spit if I am sitting in a space of sadness, but I'm judging myself around that sadness, I'm being self-critical. I'm, you know, like Kristen, you're an idiot, you're terrible, you're tor- like you're a horrible person, you know, whatever those things we can say to ourselves. I that should is- be better than this. I should be yes. beyond this. Shame on you. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. When we're in that, that's what I would call a saboteur. That's not grief. We're sabotaging. What we're doing is we're beating ourselves up. And if you were any other, if if you saw that happening to any loved one in your life, you would be like, stop this. Don't say those terrible things to yourself. So I think when you're in a space where you're, when you are, being masochistic, harmful, emotionally harmful to yourself, being mean to yourself, judging yourself, shaming yourself. Those are, that's not grief. Grief is, oh my goodness, look at this really sad thing that happened. (laughs) and, and, And honoring the sadness in yourself for that. It is not shaming yourself for the fact that like you're suffering. You use this phrase saboteur and that you and I have both taken this course in the positivity quotient or PQ and you went a lot farther than I did. You got certified in in training this stuff, but they actually have you take a little test online and, Mm -hmm. and they actually name the top saboteurs because people have different saboteurs. Here's, here's my test. I'll show it to you here on zoom. Um, Yeah. And I have my number one. I'll show you my number one saboteur if you'll tell me yours. 
hundred percent happy to do so. <laughs> what is yeah. your what is yours, Kristen? Mine is the pleaser and still very much innate in it. Ding, 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 eight point eight. So yeah. <laughs> Number one. So what does the pleaser tell you about yourself? Uh, it tells me that the good thing is that I'm a giver. Um, and it's not a bad thing to be a giver, to want to be a giver in relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my friends. It's good to be known as a giver. It Mm -hmm. is not good to have every gift be a transaction in which I'm looking for a dopamine hit from that person, uh, whether it's, you know, taking out the trash or you know, just like being a decent human being, changing the oil or, you know, giving my wife a nice big hug and a kiss on the way out the door in the morning, just whatever it is, if I'm looking for, if I'm really doing it, looking for what I can get out of it, then I'm people pleasing, trying to win universal approval. And that's just delusional, you know? Okay, yeah. now you. Why yeah. do you, why are you a a pleaser? And why is that a sabotage? Why is that a bad thing? Yeah. So saboteurs are built in strengths. So the strength of being a pleaser, right? Uh, any saboteur is an overplayed strength. So for me, um the core is that I'm an empath I can feel things for people. I have such incredible ability to put myself in other people's shoes and to experience kind of what they're experiencing. Um, Big heart, big giver, right? Same thing. Um, When I overplay that strength, and to your point, when I feed, I, I make that the dominant thing people experience of me, I'm actually not letting them see me because what they're experiencing is a version of me that will accommodate or will compromise her own needs for their needs. Um, A version of me that doesn't honor self-care or effective boundaries. And so when I do, when I play overplay that I'm not showing up as myself, I'm showing up as a version of myself that is trying to ingratiate you. So if you love me, then I feel happy, but guess what? Like not everyone's going to love me. I'm not everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. So, That's so work- beautiful. That is so beautiful. The yeah. way it was explained to me really early on, before I ever knew this positivity quotient and you know, this test and everything was people pleasing is dishonest. It's mm-hmm. dishonest. I'm not being who I really am. I'm being who I think you want me to be in order to I- accept me. And the first thing I'm doing is selling myself out. I'm yeah. I'm not just not real, inauthentic, fake. I yeah. am I'm I'm destroying some of me. I'm just dis- fundamentally dishonest. And yeah. it, it it causes harm. Saboteurs cause harm to me uh, yeah. in the world. So I love 100%. the way you put it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I mean, it's a like, I mean, gosh, this has been a lifelong journey, this habit, this behavior that I exhibit, you know, we, we earn these, you know, in our badge of trying to become human, 
um, when we're young and we're trying to figure out the world. And, you know, these saboteurs can show up either as a result of our interactions with our parents, right? Like, how did we either earn or assert or, you know, build a sense of love in our home, right? Like hyperachieving every parent out there. It's like, get your A's, get your A's, get your A's. Well, at what point does getting your A's create harm to your child? If you're telling them the way that I can best love you is if you have an A, well, what the hell happens when they get a C? Then we're kind of inadvertently telling them, well, I'd love you less if you get a C, right? Well, that's not fair. That's not unconditional love. We're not, we're not exhibiting our ability to fully love our children through their journeys, right? And we all do this. I know I do it, right? So we all kind of just inadvertently or unconsciously bring that level of or lack of awareness into how we raise our children or how we think about ourselves. There's also environmental situations that can trigger saboteurs that have nothing. You can have the most functional like like healthy attached parents in the world and you still have saboteurs, right? Because you have a world around you that also tells you this is the way you need to be to, you know, um, gain love, appreciation, affection, recognition in the world, right? So we have all these other factors. So for me, um, you know, this, the pleaser was a coping mechanism for, my childhood and my youth and it served me really freaking well and that was great but now i'm like a fully formed human and i have the ability to choose which coping mechanisms i'm going to use and i just don't need to play up that one anymore that one doesn't need to be in my arsenal i have a whole bunch of other tools i can use i can just use empathy for example <laughs> and not overplay and use the pleaser and in the pq model what gets less attention but should get more attention is that each saboteur has a corresponding sage or as you talked about it attributes strengths yeah. you know assets uh and for the pleaser there is such a thing as self-empathy is that yeah. Kristen comes first we're oh. going to take care of little Kristen's needs first because if we don't care, take care of little Kristen's needs, then nobody else gets served. Yeah, 100%. You know, I've learned over the course of, I'd probably say the work that I've done over the last 10 years and very solidly when I started becoming a coach about five years ago, um, that was the eye opener for me. That one was like, oh my goodness, Kristen, like, you know, I, I think you think you're pretty awesome. But as you build more self-awareness, you're like, oh, boy, I got these I got these things kind of hanging out here and um, that I need to work through and work on. Um, but that's like, honestly, I think the journey we're all on. We're all trying to figure out who the hell we are. And um, and we used these tools. You know, PQ is a tool. Um, it was a tool that resonated for me. But we use a hundred of them. I mean, I, I do leadership assessments using all different types of tools um, with my clients. And it's about how do we build this level of awareness? Because the more you know about yourself, the more you realize you're always in choice. Um, you get to choose your thoughts. You are, in a lot of ways, your thoughts. Your emotions are an incredible guiding system. Um, you don't have to be scared of them. 
we can just kind of process them and move on. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to cleanorigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to cleanorigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's cleanorigin.com, code RADIO10. I want to talk to you about parenting since that's what you've uh, chosen. Uh, how did you decide to become a mother? Mm, oh my gosh. That's my journey. I mean, I wanted to be a mom, as I said, like I was naturally maternal. Um, I knew I always wanted to be a mom. Um, my, uh, like husband and I, when we started, I was probably about 28. And we were trying to have a kid. Um, It took us seven years to have our son. And the journey in that was incredibly disruptive because we ended up going through multiple losses. We went through, um, I did three rounds of in vitro. I did four failed attempts of trying to get (laughs) the baby into my uterus to stick. Nothing happened there. Um, And the only way I became a mom was by my sister, Amy, being my surrogate. So through the journey of of like um, IVF, we had two embryos that were healthy and that were um, genetically like sound. Um, And uh, I had nowhere to put them, like my oven if you will, was broken. And um, I needed to put those embryos somewhere else. And my sister, Amy, raised her hand and said, I will uh, carry your your baby. So That is beautiful. You know, that is so beautiful. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it was, you know, that was probably the thing that I, it taught me was how the hell do you accept a gift? I had spent my whole life giving, giving, giving. And I was in the space where I actually had to receive something so profound and so like born out of just unconditional love and know fully and completely there was no way in my life I could repay that gift. There was not a single thing I could do. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of love. There's no amount of attention that I could do. I just had to receive. And that was a huge learning for me. Um, and we went, you know, our son was born, like, I like to say bottom of the ninth, like two, <laughs> two strikes and he came out and we had him in 2016 and it's the love of my life. Um, so, so it was were you a- there for the birth. You were, we were. So she lived at that point in Hawaii. Um, she was, so we were in Chicago juggling, you know, parenthood or juggling the process, um, joining appointments virtually, um, because we couldn't obviously be in Hawaii the whole time. I was working at a private equity firm, busting my butt 80 hours a week, you know, um, and, uh, and the, uh, about a week before we flew out and spent a week with her, like during the pregnancy and, um, and then had him. And it was incredible. We spent about his first six weeks in Hawaii of his life. 
when he emerged and they, you know, suction the goop out and wipe them off and bundle them up, did they hand him to you? No. Well, we, we, so we, you, when you go through this journey, you prearrange all those details. So we had a lot of like contracts and agreements and dialogue. I mean, Amy had to go through therapists. Her ex, her husband at the time had to go through therapy. We all had to go through group stuff together. I mean, the intensity of this journey is just profound. And you have to plan for every step, like what happens if in the most worst scenarios, right? And write it all in a legal contract and all that kind of stuff. So we were... So we had we had agreed that um, Rowan would go to Amy first, and when she was ready, she would hand them to us, and that was an incredibly beautiful experience. You know, um, she. Uh, I mean, it really was like handing this gift of life. I mean, how do you even? Be, there's no words to express that level of joy and overwhelm of emotion um, in that moment, because uh, yeah, I mean, she, she's my like angel. I mean, she, she's one of, she's one of the greatest loves of my life. Um, What did your mom do that you find yourself doing that's helpful and useful? What did your mom model for you that you're like, I find myself doing that. And thank God I had that model. Yeah. I mean, my mom was always a very, both of my parents were incredible hard, hard workers. Um, so I think that, that, you know, we've got to work hard for what we've got that, that work ethic was always um, embedded in our family. And I mean, I grew up in a family where, I mean, my dad is not college educated. My mom at that time wasn't either. She put herself through school Um she got her bachelor's a year before I did. She got her master's, I think, maybe three months before I did. You know, um, so I think that constant learning was one of those things that like you're never too old to improve yourself, to grow, to develop. Um, that I deeply admire because, I mean, when she was when she had us, she was what, 21 when she had me and she had three kids within a year. So my twin sisters are 13 months apart and she um, was working at like Cub Foods and like waitressing and doing all these things. And she's an incredibly smart and brilliant woman. She ended up going back to school. She ended up becoming a drug and alcohol counselor. She became a therapist. She now, I mean, God, we're in like, I'm literally reliving my mom's life because I'm totally going down that same path. And, um, and what she taught me was um, there, it's our job to learn. This is like the, the, it's our job. Like there is no other job in this world. There's things that pay you, but we are evolutionary creatures. We need to constantly expose and challenge and build and um, and be something different than we were yesterday. So what is something that your mom did that you're like, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that does not work now. And so I'm going to shift and build on the foundation she had. What is something that she had to do or did that you're like, 
thank God I'm not going to do what my mother did when it came to this. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's how deep do we want to go? Um, the, the deepest, <laughs> the deepest. Um, I think the pattern that I had witnessed as a child that carried into my relationship with in my marriage was one of codependency. And I think that the behavior and education around that, like I obviously modeled a lot of unconsciously, a lot of the behaviors and actions of my first marriage. Um, did your parents stay married? Mom. Did they stay married or did they get divorced? They, they did get divorced when I was 30. So mm -hmm. when I was much older, but what I, what I saw and what I think, um, you know, she and I have both learned a ton about um, is how do we break codependent patterns in our relationships? And over probably the last 15 years, I was building that skill set. Um, and, um, and so I think the, uh, we all carry intergenerational patterns into our relationships, right? So, you know, she and I joke around now, but it's like, you know, the pattern she witnessed, it's the same pattern, but it was so much bigger in her childhood. It got smaller in my childhood. And I hope that it's almost non-existent in my son's childhood, right? But it's the pattern that happens over time um, based on how we observe people loving each other in, in, a, in a relationship. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> and because of your experience and because you are yourself, not just a mother, but a mom, a good mom, um, yeah. you know, what can you offer women, other moms, um, beyond just, oh, I'm a mom, you're a mom, you know, so let me tell you my mom tips, you know? I mean, what is it that you can do for women, particularly you're, you're coaching professional women um, mm -hmm. around the area of work-life balance, which my experience was, <clears throat> I was in a generation with women, boomers, Gen X, Gen, Gen Z, that if they went to work, they felt guilty. And if they stayed home, they felt guilty. So either way, they were going to feel guilty. Yeah. Um, so how do you help women navigate that? Yeah. I mean, that isn't so far off from the way that women are feeling today. So the sad part is we haven't made much progress. Um, we have different tools and maybe there's like more resourcing and things like that. But for the most part, I think a lot of women do feel that way. Um, what I want for every woman is for them to step into their own resonant self. So what does that mean? It means living in a space of deep self-authority and also self-acceptance. And when you can visualize your life beyond the identity 
you know, traits, like beyond being a mother, beyond being a wife, beyond being a coworker, when you can figure out what your purpose is, what the thing is that you are on this earth to do, and you can have that clarity around it, the world starts to fall in place because you start to see those values and actions that help support that vision for yourself. So what's different for me or what I help, you know, working moms, moms do is find themselves in this journey. Because a lot of times it's as if women press pause when they have their first kid and then they wake up um, 18, 20, 25 years later and they unpause and they're like, what the hell was that? Who am I? There's such an identity crisis and we overplay the role of mom. You know, mom is savior, mom is rescuer, mom is victim, mom is all these things. We overplay that role because we are kind of conditioned in some ways to think that we have to do it all. We actually don't. The best thing you can do is be your best self. And when you show up as your best self, you can start to figure out how to resource yourself appropriately with those tools and things that you need to get things done. So there's no one right way to live this life. But what I think we get trapped into as women and as moms is when we're stuck in caregiver, when we're stuck in, you know, we're the one who's planning all the parties and doing all the organizing. And we have all this invisible labor that sits on our shoulders. And so we're busting our butt to prove ourselves at work. And we're busting our butt to just maintain the life at home. And we're feeling relatively alone in that journey because our partner may or may not know how to tap in to those systems. Um, And you feel depleted. You don't have the energy for yourself and you're really struggling and you don't feel like you have any me time, right? It's like, well, what what does the world look like if we reverse that? What if we prioritize you (laughs) and then figure out all the things that have to be true to make that happen? Um, How do you coach women of how to articulate what it is that they really need um, Mm -hmm. without apology or feeling guilty or anything else or, you know, going straight to bitch and demanding and, you know, do this or else. Uh, How do you coach them around how to just speak from authority and say, I need this weekend away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that dance. Uh, You know, for me, what I find in coaching is it is a gentle journey to get there because what, um, and every woman's a little bit different. You know, they may not have the same level of awareness as to what their needs are. Sometimes it takes a while to coach somebody, just be, be able to articulate what they want or what their needs are. Um, so, you know, the first part is know yourself. Then it's like, know what your wants and needs are, know what the, the direction or the destination is for you. Like, where are we going in this whole big picture? What's that vision? And when you're gaining clarity on those three things, then I think you can start to actually play with the actions. How do I verbalize? How do I build the skills to articulate my needs? Um, and also, manage through the consequences of it, right? Because you have to be pretty self-assured to know that when you articulate a need that you may or may not have that need met 
And what are the consequences to that? What happens there when you start to articulate needs that you haven't typically expressed before? You know, um, I have a client who, you know, she had, but we've spent, she's probably one of my longest lasting clients. Um, and when I first started working with her, she had a really hard time articulating who she was outside of motherhood. Right. She was like, what, what is this? Who am I? I've, I've connected all of my identity to being this caregiver. And now I don't know who I am. So we spent a lot of time working on who is this beautiful person? Like, who is this amazing human? And what does she want in these next 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or whatever her life is? What, what is that dream? And once we were able to articulate the dream, then we were able to figure out, oh, well, how do you organize your life now to, to reflect that path? How do we get there? That's easy. Making the dream happen is a lot easier than being able to understand what the dream is. Um, that takes some work. So, um, and now she's in a space where she's retired and she's living her life and she's having a blast and unapologetic about how she's making choices in her life. Well, I'm not a woman, but when people ask me what I want, I immediately fall back to, it doesn't matter what I want. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what I want. That's selfish. So how do you get over that? What's really selfish is not doing the hard work to be able to learn your true heart's desire, your true North. Um, yeah. How do you get beyond this is selfish, it's selfish to articulate what it is that you really want to do in this world. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I feel that the term selfish, the truth is we all are selfish. We should be selfish. It doesn't have to be a four letter word. It's not you know, people interpret it, right? And for the longest time, I totally was the exact same thing. Like it's the part of the pleaser, that feeling of, um, if I say I'm selfish, oh my God, like what a terrible human am I? Now, what do we know now? That statement I just made, that's a judge. I'm just being self-critical, you know? And what it is, is me reinforcing the training that I had, which means that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't actually care for yourself. <laughs> but like, if you don't care for yourself, who else will? And if you don't know how to care for yourself, how can anyone else in your life help you with that? How can they be supportive if you can't articulate it? And we don't want to raise children who don't know how to do that, you know, how to self-advocate. We want children to be able to say, you know, and they're great at it. Mom, I'm hungry. Mom, I'm tired. Oh, my leg hurts. Like They're so good at it, you know? It takes a while to untrain the muscle that says, Oh, I need I need to rest right now. I'm tired. Oh. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't maybe I should say no to that. It doesn't feel good. I don't like that activity. You know? Well, my experience is that there are certain addictions, compulsions for which you will absolutely be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And uh workaholism is one. Yeah. And being the self-sacrificing mom who is 
has no time for herself, that that is, a, it, you know, just the person who is just hollowed out, who is just empty. Yeah. Um, that that is absolutely applauded and rewarded. And you can be just like absolutely not killing your body. You can be killing your body, but you can be certainly killing yourself, your true self. You can be killing yourself in the name of being this virtuous wife and mother. Yeah, the martyr. The martyr. You know, yeah. I mean, the... the As you say that, what comes up for me is you have to ask yourself why we do that. Like, why is it that women do feel that way in the workforce? Well, because the patriarchy has been driving the workforce for a really freaking long time. And guess what? If I devalue your contribution, if I devalue your like labor, if I make it so that your $1, my $1 equals 80 cents on you, which is what happens today. Or if I make it so that the labor you do at home doesn't have value, right? The All the things that are on your list, well, then I can keep you in a space of relative um, compliance, right? So, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, and I'm not blaming, I'm not pointing fingers. I think none of this is inten intentional or pointing to a particular man. But I do think what it is, is we've built a system that continuously devalues female work and labor is not treated equally. So if we think about the teachers, the nurses, the educators, the women in these like more feminine roles, right? We have purposefully created systems that devalue it. And what does that say? It says women, you got to work really hard to play the man's game, right? You got to work double, you got to work triple the amount of effort and amount of reward. And I just call BS on that. Thank and, God you and, do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we don't I, have to do that. I have to ask you this question because I'm running out of time and I apologize I for that. Yeah. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this recording, what is your legacy? Mm. I, I, everything centers for me around love, self-love, love of others. I think that love is the most powerful tool out there. It is the reason why we are all here. And I hope that people walk away giving themselves a little bit more grace, kindness, and love towards themselves for the great work they're already doing. Well, you are doing great work, Kristen. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing with me this morning. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Stuart. You're a wonderful, wonderful narrator and interviewer. Thank you so much. 
I also admire Kristen Lampert as an entrepreneur, as a straight-up entrepreneur who created, invented parental shift coaching. Parental shift coaching. Kristen Lampert. Thank you, Kristen. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. Thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and now Voice Locket. I hope you'll check us out at voicelocket.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10.